Church, we are in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 19 to 22 today. 19 to 22. And as is custom, I've made it a pattern to not look at the page number. So if you have the page number of the Pew Bible in front of you, I'm going to guess 869. 977. 977. Does God still connect with this world? Does God still connect with this world? More specifically, does his presence ever come into the world? You see, church, I don't know if you know this, but in America, we live in a very spiritual age. Less and less people are deists, believing that deists believe that God is sort of like the clockmaker who makes the clock, winds it up, puts it out, and watches it. Meaning he doesn't really have any involvement in the world after he created it. But does God manifest himself and even dwell with people in the world that he created? If that's the case, if God does dwell with people, if his presence is felt with people, by which institution or people does he reveal himself? Some will say that the hope for humanity and the answer to its problems is found in government. Some will say it's found in humanitarian organizations. Some will say it's found in reestablishing the nuclear family. Some will aim at a utopian society. Some will say that the best hope for mankind to get along is to unite around sports. And of all those, that might be the one thing that makes most sense. But the scriptures say that God's household is founded on Christ, formed by the Spirit. And this is how God dwells with his people and connects with his people that he created. And that's what we're going to see in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Follow along as I read that. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In our text today, we're going to see that God's household is founded on Christ and formed by the Spirit. We have three points I'll go ahead and give them to you now. Point one, we see the fellowship in God's house. Fellowship in God's house. That's verse 19. Point two, the foundation of God's house. Verse 20. And thirdly, the formation of God's house. Verses 21 to 22. You can't always alliterate, but when you can, you go for it. So the fellowship of God's house, the foundation of God's house, and the formation 
of God's house. The fellowship in God's house, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 19 is a summary statement of verses 11 to 18. People who were once far off are now brought near. So as we said in the previous weeks, Paul is using language found in Isaiah chapter 57. And he describes in Isaiah 57, the Jewish people are described as near to God and Gentiles are described far from God. And the you here in verse 19, the you are no longer strangers and aliens, that's referring to Gentiles. They used to be strangers and aliens to the promises of God, the the covenants, the commonwealth of Israel. The Old Testament refers to them in this way, uh, not as in a derogatory manner, like, look at those strangers or aliens. They're so weird. Not like that. But simply to communicate that their ways of worshiping God are foreign and strange to the ways God has properly revealed himself to be worshiped. Without the revelation of God revealing to his people, the Israelites, how to be worshipped, people notice that there's a son, intuitively know that they are a created being and that there's a creator, and they figure out ways to worship him. And some of those ways are vile and, and wicked and atrocious. Human sacrifices um, being one of them. And so these ways are called strange or foreign. And then those people who embrace those ways are called foreigners and strangers. You can uh, look through, uh, maybe after the sermon, look at Leviticus 17, for instance. And you shall say to them, this is 17 verse 8, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice. And then in Leviticus 17 specifically, just goes through and through. He demarcates uh, Israel and then the uh, foreigners and strangers, that is the Gentiles. But now in Christ, instead of feeling like outcasts, they are just as much a part of God's house as Jewish people. They are fellow citizens with the members of the household of God. But how did these distinctions vanish? Look back at verse 13 of chapter 2. Verse 13 says, the blood of Christ has brought the Gentiles near. And then look at 14. 14 says, he made both Jews and Gentile one by himself. Being broken down. But walls between men could only be broken down if the wall between God and man is first broken down. So verse 16 says... He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. His cross has reconciled man to God because there was justice done on the cross. And then when justice was done on the cross, forgiveness was extended through the cross. Now, because everyone has been unjust before God, they all, in are, they all are in equal need of his forgiveness. And this forgiveness is found at the same spot every single time, at the cross of Christ. As we said last week, the vertical hostility 
was destroyed and that paved the way for the horizontal hostility to be destroyed. The hostility between God and man destroyed and the hostility between man and man destroyed all from the same spot, the cross of Christ. Now the fellowship in God's household between Jew and Gentile can exist. And as mentioned last week, the destruction of the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile reflects the destruction of all ethnic hostilities. All can gather as one because they're gathering around the same one, Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians specifically, we see that we're called one body. Here we're called one house. Later on, we're called one structure, one temple, one dwelling place for God. Whether you are from Nairobi, Kenya, whether you're from Kansas City, whether you're from Beijing or Moscow, all are one in Christ. The church don't miss this because as a Christian, you can never get over this. You can never assume its power to save you and its power to sustain you in this life. The one instrument that can destroy all hostility, all divisions is an instrument that looks weak. God's way to destroy hostility was not with chariots, Or with tanks, but with himself having nails pierced through his hands and feet on a tree. Hostility was conquered in the paradox of strength displayed through weakness. And church, that's what at the epicenter of who we gather around, it is Jesus. And even deeper than that, it is Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And that levels a playing field. And as we looked at last week, no matter your ethnic backgrounds, no matter your wealth, no matter your charming or awkward personality, no matter your age, we all come around the cross of Christ. All right, secondly, that's the fellowship. Didn't spend much time on that because uh, basically all throughout the rest of of Ephesians, he's getting into that more and more. And that's what he mainly spoke about last week. Secondly, The foundation of God's house. Look at verse 20. Foundation of God's house. He says that Jew and Gentile are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So now in verse 20, the foundation of God's house is explained. So we already got this picture of household. And like any building, there must be a foundation. Every house has a foundation. The construction of God's house, his people, his church is on the foundation of three things here. There's three components to this foundation. One, the apostles. Two, the prophets. And three, Christ. And I think what the apostle Paul is doing here is he's He's starting kind of at the top of the foundation, if you will, with the apostles. And then he's going a level further into the foundation and he's looking at the prophets. I think he's saying the prophets of the Old Testament here. And thirdly, then he's going even deep. Deeper than the, prof- deeper, deeper than the apostles, deeper than the prophets. And he's saying it's the foundation of Christ. The cornerstone. 
holding all of this together. So who are the apostles? Uh, The apostles are those who have seen Christ and then been commissioned by Christ. There's no apostolic succession after that. You might find, I have dear brothers uh, who believe this, and I'm actually not quite sure what I think about this. You might find kind of lowercase apostles, lowercase a apostles, people with kind of apostolic, maybe pioneering gifts. But you will never find apostles like Jesus is mentioning here. When he speaks of apostles here, he's speaking of the twelve. The twelve or the eleven and then Judas being replaced by Matthias. And then he's speaking of the apostle Paul. Who is somewhat known as the apostle to the Gentiles. These are the ones who have been seen Christ's commission. They have authority to speak on Christ's behalf. And the reason that if you read the the New Testament epistles, the reason that it's so important to know who the apostles are is because there are such things as false apostles. Those who claim to have special authority in God, but they actually don't. And so if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 to uh, verses 13 to 15, the apostle Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Paul is very much aware of a threat to the church. Uh, That is people saying they have special revelatory power from God when they actually don't. And much damage can be done in the church and has has been done in the church historically by those who claim special unique authority from God and more specifically from Christ. And yet they don't have it. Because if you follow a false apostle... You're going to follow a false gospel. And if you believe a false gospel, there is no hope for you. So when we talk about the household of God, which is the church, the top layer of that foundation is the apostles and what they teach. Going a layer further under the apostles is that of the prophets of the Old Testament. Some say that this is prophets in the New Testament time. I think that's an okay case. Uh, to, but I think that the order of things here makes most sense. And that's what convinces me that this is apostles, then prophets, then Christ. Uh, Jesus said that, that there would be false prophets that arise and lead many astray. Uh, we have the false prophets of Baal. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Uh, many false prophets have gone out in the world. And you keep reading First John. Many false prophets will go out in the world. Uh, the, the main point is here is that, that know that you can test a prophet by what they speak. If it's in line with the scriptures. And then he goes a, a, a step further. And he gets to Christ. You see apostles and prophets are only genuine apostles. They're only genuine prophets if their source of authority is Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul says there in verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the whole thing is fit together on Christ Jesus, this one man God. This cornerstone wording is taken from the book of Psalms and also from Isaiah. So uh, you can flip there if you want. You can just follow along as I read it out loud. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, which Katie read earlier, says this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who laid as a foundation in Zion. Zion is God's holy city, which I think is a church now and then will be the, the, the people in the new Jerusalem, the city of God in the age to come. God says, I am the one who has laid a foundation as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Psalm 118 also speaks of this foundational cornerstone, says, open to me the gates of righteousness. That I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Okay, there's one gate that opens up. There's one way to be made righteous. There's one way for the righteous to enter through the gates of the city. And the psalmist says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. My friends, and then Jesus interprets these very passages in Matthew 21, verses 42 to 45, and says this. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So the cornerstone will either destroy you or either save you. You will either stand on the cornerstone of Christ or you will stumble on the cornerstone of Christ. And it appears in Jesus' day that many of the leaders stumbled over him. In fact, they rejected him. And it was the Lord's doing. They looked upon God himself and they rejected him. Not in some passive way. But the closer that the leaders of Judaism at the time, the closer the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes got to Jesus, the more they hated him. All the way up to the point of wanting to conspire with the Romans to kill him, to hang him on the cross. The builders rejected the cornerstone. But the church is founded on the cornerstone. You see that in the beginning of the church. In the book of Acts, Acts is, is unfolding the, the history of the church, the beginnings of the church. In the book of Acts in chapter 4, uh, we read in verses 10 and 11 and 12. 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, friends, you stand on this cornerstone for your salvation. Or you come to this cornerstone, you reject him, and therefore will be crushed by the cornerstone, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And these passages regarding the Messiah being the cornerstone of God's people teach us that some will look upon Christ and love him. And some will look upon Christ and reject him and hate him. And so the question arises for us, church, is in light of this passage, is a church actually a church if they differ from the teachings of Jesus, the prophets, and the apostles? Are you an actual church if you go to the right or to the left of what Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, teaches? Church, if Jesus showed up and heard the preaching of this church, would he be amening and nodding his head? If Jesus in bodily form, we know he's here in spirit, we're sitting right here next to Elijah. Wouldn't that be crazy? If he was sitting right there, would he hear this message, the messages that are preached week in, week out from this pulpit? And we'd be like, amen. Yes, that's true. Well, friends, I hope so. I hope so. That is certainly the aim, my heart's aim, and the aim of every other person who exhorts us from God's word here. But what if he goes into a church? He shows up, hears the the word proclaimed, even if it's done in his name. And what if they're teaching things contrary to what he has taught? Contrary to the apostles and the prophets? Uh, What if if he shows up to a church and they're teaching that righteousness is achieved by following all of the law? By perfect obedience to the law? Or what if he shows up and there's teaching that apostolic succession has been uh, gone through the ages all the way through Rome to the Pope right now? Or what if he shows up to a so-called church and hears baptismal regeneration? That is, you are saved from your sins when you go under the water and come out. Or what if he shows up to a church that is very fuzzy and confusing on the doctrine of repentance and says things that are ambiguous, like love is love, and meaning that you don't have to repent if you believe something contrary to revealed truth? Or what if you, he shows up to a church and says there's many ways to God. There's many ways to be reconciled to God. Friends, according to Scripture, If any message like that or anything that is contrary to the teachings of the apostles, the prophets, and Christ himself, if you ever show up to a church like that, according to the New Testament, that's not a church. They might call themselves a church. They might even have a sign that says, welcome. We welcome all in the name of Jesus to go in. And they're not opening up God's word and preaching and teaching what the apostles, prophets, and Christ himself has taught. Friends, that's not a church. 
As Jesus said, many false prophets will come after me and do things. They'll even perform miracles in my name, Jesus says that. Yet they don't know me. Friends, that's why we are wanting to be a word-centered church. Everything we do when it comes to what we sing, what is taught, what is preached, what is prayed in light of the word. Did you, do you realize that? That when we do a prayer confession, that it's not, you know, we don't ask someone doing the prayer confession. They tell us some things that you want to get off your chest and confess before God. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But we want to be grounded in God's truth. So what we do is we put Isaiah 28, 11 to 17 in there. And we say, Katie, please can help us confess our sins in light of this text. Friends, that grounds us in God's word. That's why we have a statement of faith. That it comes from God's word. Everything we do must be found upon God's word. And we cannot assume this church. That's why when you hear me preach, uh, the regular pattern of our preaching is to go through God's books, the, God's word, book by book. Kind of verse by verse preaching. It's not necessarily wrong to do topical sermons. I've done a few here. But if that's a regular diet of what you're hearing, uh, friends, you're in danger of hearing man's opinion placed upon, forced upon God's text. And what we want to do is we be controlled by what God has revealed and the way he has revealed it. It's a dangerous thing to be in a church that says their foundation is Jesus Christ. And yet they don't open God's word and preach God's word as meant to be preached. If you have more questions about that and, and how our church seeks to abide on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, then please come ask me afterwards. I love, love to speak to you about that. Well, thirdly, we see the formation of God's house, the formation of God's house. The fellowship is it's Jew and Gentile, all ethnic backgrounds, people founded on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone foundation, sorry, the, the fellowship and then the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Christ. And then we see the formation of God's house. Okay. Uh, you don't really have a house if it's merely just has a foundation, right? Uh, you, you need more than that. It's the most important part for sure. Trust me, I live in Brookside. When you, if you buy in Brookside, uh, you have to have inspectors look at the foundation. And you ha- amen, those who live in Brookside, and ask them all kinds of questions. Is this a good foundation? Will I get water in my basement? Will a foundation crack? It's important. And good news, if it's still there after being built in 1920, 30, in the 30s or 40s, then, then though you might have cracks here and there, you have a good foundation. So it's okay to live in Brookside. Here's what he says in verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here are these words of unity yet again and building yet again. If you look in the, these uh, four or five verses, you'll, these four verses, you'll see, in, especially in the original language of Greek, you see uh, this little um, suffix where it, it has the idea of house. You see it four or five times. And then you see this uh, idea of togetherness as well, being built together. 
And so these words of unity and building, Paul is driving home. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul is saying that just as a building has stones that are fitted together so it can grow, so too are we as God's church. We're being chiseled and shaped and smoothed out as we grow together. As we learn, as we learn to love one another. You see what he's getting at here? He's expounding more on this in chapters 4, 5, and 6. In chapter 3. We're learning and growing together. And this is the Spirit's work. For us being joined together. You and I are not able to do this in our own efforts. And our own striving and our own scheming. But God can do this and will do this through us. We aren't merely a building that is complete. We're a a structure that keeps growing with additions and with improvements. This is the Spirit's work. This is something that's being done to us. As we read God's word, preach God's word, sing God's word. In our, in our house, we're getting a new back door and a new front door for our home. The current doors work fine. They keep out the rodents or possible intruders. They, uh, for the most part, keep out hot air. We don't want hot air there. Cold air, we don't want cold air. Uh, but for aesthetic reasons and for insulation reasons, we're wanting to replace our old doors with new doors. Our whole house isn't changing. We're not moving the place of the doors, but... In a way to improve our house, we're replacing these old doors. And church, that's sort of what is being meant here. God grows his church, refines his church like someone who's making improvements to their established house with its good foundation. The structure is there, but it keeps growing. God isn't done with the house. And so the church is established, and yet God is still Building the church. You see, our foundation is first Christ, and then the prophets, and then the apostles, and now the members of the church having this sturdy foundation are being joined together and growing in love for God and one another. That's what God is doing in his church. And then he says that we're growing, using Old Testament language, into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, the temple was a place to, to beckon the nations to come and see who God is. A place where sacrifice for sins was made. A place where God was worshipped. And a place where God's very presence dwelled in the holy of holies. It's a place where God's people could say to the nations, to the Gentiles... Come behold the beauty and majesty and forgiveness and mercy and the promises of Yahweh our God. Come join us. That was the primary function of the temple. is in many ways to be a light unto the nations. To have reminders of sacrifice, the need for spilled blood, for an atonement of sins. And God uses this language. As a temple, a holy temple. That is a temple that is set apart from the world. And he uses that as a metaphor for the church. And then you have verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Moreover, just notice how much Christ is mentioned in this text. Even if his name isn't there, all things are happening in him and through him and for him and by him. So in verse 21, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ, church, we are being, being built together. And that's why it's so important not to assume the identity of who Jesus is. See, at the core of the identity of Jesus is the message that he proclaims. So if you are, are not yet a Christian and you are a visitor here, whether you are not yet a Christian and you are a child, or whether you're not yet a Christian and you are a senior citizen, it's very important to under, not assume you know who Jesus is. So if you assume that Jesus is a good moral teacher, you don't, you've never read the scriptures and interacted with who Jesus says he actually is. At the core identity of Jesus is the message that he proclaimed. The message is that you have fallen from your maker and that you are held captive by your sin like a prisoner in a jail cell on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You've got no hope to get yourself out of the bondage of sin. Isaiah says you are in a sense in a dungeon of sin. There's no way out. You can't break free. And Jesus said, I came to liberate the captives. And Jesus brings light to your darkened state to see your unrighteousness contrasted with his righteousness. And then he says, I'll pay for your sins. Jesus is the one who opens up our blind eyes and brings us who are imprisoned by sin out of the dungeon and into the light of his glory. Friend, he gives you the sturdy and steady foundation that you've been longing for your whole life. He makes sense of your life. And then you can build your life upon him. I wonder if you've been missing this sort of foundation in your life. If you feel from day to day, you don't really know what you're doing here, what your purpose is here. And you are fearful to ask, to even ask or entertain the question, what comes after this life? Friends, question, the answer to that question is judgment. You will be judged by a righteous God. And you will either be pardoned because you have confessed that you are a sinner. And you confess your need for Jesus' death and atonement on the cross for your sins. Or you will come before the judge and say, I've done enough right things in my life. Please pardon me. And he will say, no, I am holy and I am good. And because I am good, because I am holy, I judge what is evil. See, God is a good judge and he judges all of mankind. There's only two types of people, those whose sins are forgiven and those whose sins are not forgiven. So I encourage you, <laughs> If you're not yet a Christian, come to Christ. Aren't you tired of building your life upon shifting sands? I know it's, it's, it's really vogue in vogue today to say that uh, we, you have a unique worldview. That you're maybe even progressive in some ways. Not in a political sense, but in a, in a worldview sense. But how do you know that your progression really isn't just the latest fad of human beings trying to make sense of it all? As anti-establishment as you might think you are, 
you might just be swallowing what the world is trying to establish for a foundation. You see, the scriptures say that today is a day of salvation. Don't stumble over the cornerstone of Christ. Come to him by turning from sin and toward him in faith. Stand on Christ. Today, build your life upon him. He will not fail you. He will not deceive you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's a sure and steady foundation, an anchor for our souls. Come to Christ. And then church, in our very last part of the verse here, we have the heartbeat of the letter. In him, in Jesus, Notice the, trini- the triune language of a Godhead here. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It sounds outlandish. It's a remarkable claim that God would dwell here with us in his church, even when we're scattered throughout the week, but especially On the Lord's day when the church is gathered. And for our church from 1030 to 12 o'clock on Sundays. The claim here is that God's very presence dwells here. It's a remarkable claim. We're being built up by Jesus into a large building. Founded on him and his teaching. Of the apostles and the prophets. And God dwells in us. And the spirit is the agent who makes it all happen. Friends, that happens week in and week out here in our church. That's what Paul says in the Corinthians. That's why he cares so much about how they worship God. Is because when unbelievers come in. They are in a sense to look around and say. This is interesting. There's something unique about this. Friends, that's why we sing God. That's why we sing every week multiple songs. Have your soul, has your soul not been encouraged through the singing of God's word? Has your soul not been encouraged through the preaching of God's word and the reading of God's word? We'll get to more of this as we go through Ephesians, but I just want to end as we conclude here. With asking the question, how does the Spirit build this church? Or rather, how does the Spirit form this church? One, as I've been alluding to it throughout the sermon, is through the ordinary means of God's grace. The ordinary means of God's grace. Kind of things that really aren't that spectacular. But they're ordinary in the sense that they are week by week things that occur. These are not, this is not an exhaustive list. There are historically and in the scriptures, extraordinary ways that God's grace is poured out upon his people. But the ordinary means of God's grace, what I mean by that is through the preaching of his word, through the praying of his word, through the singing of the word, through the reading of his word, and through the ordinances of God's word, the Lord's Supper and baptism. By this, the church is built up. By this, the triune God chisels away at his people and forms them into a beautiful household. You might not be aware that this is what's been happening to you, dear church member, 
But give thanks to God that this is what he's doing to you through this church, through these ordinary means. I'm reading a book called The Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And this is what he says about the Godhead and how the Godhead is changing us through these ordinary means. He says, in revealing himself, not only does the Father send his Son and the power of his Spirit, together the Father and the Son send the Spirit to make the Son known. The Son makes the Father known, the Spirit makes the Father known, and the Spirit makes the Son known. He does this, first of all, by breathing out the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 1 Peter 1, 11, 12. So that in them, the word of Christ, Christ may be known. Does this mean that we are, in fact, back to God just giving us a book? Just like Islam? Far from it. For as we shall see, if you can bear the weight, God the Spirit not only inspires Scripture, He also comes to us. Indeed, He comes into us. There could be no greater intimacy than with this God. What it does mean is that the point of all the scriptures is to make Christ known. As the Son makes his Father known, so the Spirit breathes scriptures make the Son known. It might not be the most life-altering event every Sunday you come in here. But friends, just like you were raised as a kid, just like uh, much of parenting, it's day by day. Correction, day-by-day encouragement that forms us. And so never get over the regular means of, the regular or ordinary means of God's grace in his church. That's how the Spirit is forming us. Secondly, the Spirit forms us through conflict. The Spirit forms us through conflict. Conflict is not something to be avoided at all costs. Sometimes it's wise to avoid conflict. Proverbs speaks about this. Conflict is often an opportunity for growth. See, what God is doing here, he's trying to put two stones together into a building. Yeah, they're new stones. Yes, they're precious stones, but they're stones that can have jagged edges. They don't quite fit together. So what they do is they rub each other until they do. So it is when you covenant with someone in this church, when you love them with a commitment. It's like any relationship. It's a matter of serving, a matter of loving. You see, the difference, though, and why we have hope in this church as opposed to other institutions is that we all have the same foundation. And so when there's conflict that arises among us, Let's be a people who open up God's word, who see what it says, and graciously and humbly seek to honor the Lord Jesus in conflict. And in this way, God can be especially glorified through two people who don't see eye to eye on something, but who desire in humility to see eye to eye on something, and in the whole thing glorify Jesus. If you join this church, if you've already been a member, that's why we go through the Peacemaker's Pledge. So we can handle conflict in a peaceful, God-honoring way. In our membership classes, that's why we teach our Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Because we care about how conflict is done in our church. Well, thirdly, a way that 
the Spirit is forming our church. Is showing us the heart of Christ through one another. Showing us the heart of Christ through one another. You see, God himself says it's not enough for you just to have a regular devotion in the morning. Even let's say you spend three hours in, in prayer and scripture reading and scripture meditating. God says it's not enough for your spiritual formation. But you actually need other people in your life. And friends, through this church, you can see the heart of Christ in other brothers and sisters. You can taste what it, you can, you can experience what it is like to have compassion extended to you, for someone to care for you. I mean, this is the foundation of our gathering is Christ. Christ is the Messiah, but he's also full of love and mercy and compassion. So yes, he's the king, but he's also the king of the cross who lowered himself to the point of death on a cross. And so by the spirit of Christ, by the Holy Spirit showing us the heart of Christ through one another, we can be formed into his image more and more. We can praise him and adore him. And so just a word to, to, to you brothers and sisters in this church. If you want to be formed by the Spirit into the image of Christ, be known by the people of this church. Seek to know brothers and sisters in this church. And get to know their whole story from childbirth till now. This will kind of create the secure place that we want to, a place where we can unload our days when we're having difficulty. And you can experience the love of Christ. This is a safe place for that to happen. You will not meet condemnation and judgment when you are weak. Friends, just yesterday, I don't have much experience with anxiety. I had seasons of depression before, but just yesterday, in my house, anxiety was coming upon me in ways that I've only felt one way before. I was terrified of it leading into a dark hole of depression. Terrified. And I felt paralyzed. My heart was racing. And I knew what I should do. But I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I knew I should reach out to some brothers who know me and care for me and love me. But you know what kept me from that is my pride, my unbelief that I'm uncared for and not loved by people. So I go to my room. I lay there. My heart, my heart pace doesn't change. I sit there. The thoughts don't go away. My whole world feels like it's about to crumble upon me. So because of my pride, what I do, I reach out not to anyone in this church, but to other people from different churches, other pastors. So, you know, in God's providence, no one answered. And by the grace of God, as I'm praying, I know what I should do. And I reach out, this is going on for like an hour or so, to five or six brothers. And one by one, by one I get a phone call. I get, hey, brother, tell me what's going on. I don't know what's going on. 
I get scripture read to me. And as Jeff Chang was, was reading Hannah's prayer to me from 1 Samuel chapter 2, God just broke me. <laughs> and the peace of God overwhelmed my heart. Friends, that's how Christ wants to form you in this church. So when you covenant together, you have an obligation, but a blessed, gracious obligation from God the Father to reach out to others in this church. And I love being a pastor of church because I see it happening. And my, exhort, my exhortation to you is let it happen more and more and more. Don't build walls of insecurity and defense around you. Open up your life. Be known. Don't lead with your pretenses. Lead with you being a needy sinner in a broken world, needing Christ daily and not just needing the Bible, but needing what the Bible says, which is other people, not other people outside this church. So that can be a grace too, but other people in this covenant community, you will be met with love and grace. As one of my friends said, who didn't do this for two years, was in a bad habit, not in this church, in a different church. He was afraid that people would be scared of all the pieces of his life. That what he says, when he went to people, they took the glue and they helped put them back together. That's what you will find in this church. Don't let the lies of Satan tell you that you'll be met with judgment. You will be met with grace and compassion. Friends, that's how the spirit is forming us in this church. Our God is so good to do that and to provide this church as a grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you knew us from before the foundations of this world. You knew that our only sure and steady foundation would be Jesus Christ. And so we pray, O oh God, we ask that you would build and form us. Use him as our guide and the teachings of the apostles and the prophets who all point to Christ. Oh, Lord, we confess together that he is enough. He is all satisfying, full of compassion and full of grace. And by your spirit, build up this church upon that sure and steady foundation. And we pray this in his marvelous, matchless name, the name of Jesus Christ, a name above all names. Amen.